On this week's Big Tech Show, you might not think it could happen to you, but our guest this week explains how a significant number of Irish people may be falling victim to romance frauds online. Victims can feel a misplaced sense of shame. People can blame themselves. They feel embarrassed. And so they don't want to tell family, friends. They don't want to report it to the police. In some cases, of course, the victims are already in relationships. They're married. They have an extra reason to keep that quiet. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. Platforms. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. Have you heard the news? The Indo Daily is up for a Listener's Choice Award. Head over to the Irish Podcast Awards.ie forward slash vote. You're listening to the best of the Indo Daily, your chance to catch up on the most popular episodes of the year so far. Deirdre Jacob was an 18 year old from Newbridge in County Kildare. She was training to be a primary school teacher in the UK. And she was home for the holidays, staying in her parents' house just outside Newbridge. On the July 28th, 1998, she headed into town to do a few messages. She visited her grandmother's sweet shop. On the way home, she was seen by about five to six locals who spotted her on that journey. It was about a 25-minute walk. And the last known sighting of Deirdre was at three o'clock in the afternoon in broad daylight when she was about 300 metres from her home. After that, she vanished into thin air. This week, Gardaí began a new search operation in the hope of locating the remains of Deirdre Jacob on the Wicklow-Kildare border. Um, The woodland we're at here today was identified as an area of interest that may be relevant to the investigation. There was unusual activity noticed at the woodland uh, in or around the time Deirdre went missing. Deirdre was one of several women who went missing over a five-year period in the 1990s in an area that became known as the Vanishing Triangle. Over the years, her family have made many appeals in the hope that somebody had the answers that they are so desperately seeking. We're no further on, we're no wiser today than we were on the day she went missing. So this is why we're here, we're trying to appeal to people, to somebody to help us, because we need to find our child. Yet, still in 2021, the mystery remains of what happened to Deirdre Jacob and many of the other missing women, including Jojo Dollard. I'm Kevin Doyle and you're listening to the Indo Daily. Today I'm joined by Catherine Feegan, the Irish Independent Special Correspondent, who has for years reported on the cases of Ireland's missing women. Catherine, who was Deirdre Jacob? Deirdre Jacob was an 18-year-old from just outside Newbridge in County Kildare. She was the eldest of two children and she was described as a happy-go-lucky kind of character. Um, She had a close circle of friends and she was training to be a school teacher and um, she'd always wanted to work with children ever since she'd been a volunteer with a local children's choir. Um, Here's how her mother and sister described her. She was an outgoing girl who liked to socialise with her friends. Um, She played the piano and the guitar and um, she was into letter writing, which when she was away, she wrote to us regularly. 
And I suppose it wasn't until she went to London or to, to, to college over there that we, well, that I, I suppose, realised how much I was going to miss her. Um, she would have written to me um, and then she would have written to mum and dad as well. So, yeah, that was, I suppose she was very good in that way. On July 28th, 1998, Deirdre Jacob disappeared without a trace. And her name is back in the headlines over the last few days, alongside that of Jojo Dollard. Who is Jojo Dollard? Jojo was a 21-year-old from Callan in County Kilkenny. She was the youngest of five children. Her father had died before she was born and her mother sadly passed away when she was nine. So it was Jojo's older sister, Kathleen, who brought her up. Um, She was into music. She liked George Michael and AHA and uh, she liked socialising with her friends. And... uh, She was living in Dublin at the time of her disappearance in 1995 and uh, her intention was to move home to Callan where she had a new job in a local restaurant. So two very ordinary, very typical young Irish women with absolutely no connection to each other, but their stories are now intertwined. Yes, well, their their stories are very well known and of the time they were very similar in appearance. Um, they were quite sim- similar in, in age profile, late teens to, to early 20s. And the circumstances of their disappearances were very, very alike. They disappeared uh, off the face of the earth, effectively, and neither woman had any reason to leave their lives behind. So their families were left with no answers as to, to why they would they would disappear. And when you go back to that time and the appeals that took place around that time, there was this real sense that maybe they had just gone missing and that they were going to show up again. There was no real sense that here we would be decades later still searching for answers. And you can hear in this clip Jojo's sister's Mary making an appeal five days after she went missing. And seemed to be suggesting that she was just asking Jojo to come home from wherever she had gone. I would like to say to Jojo, I call her Jojo, we know her as Jojo. If she's out there, please phone us. We are, we are worried. And, and please, you know, we miss you. And we will give you a big hug, but please... What exactly, as far as we know, happened to Jojo Dullard? Well, Jojo was... Uh, living in Dublin at the time of her disappearance Um, and she disappeared on November 9th, 1995. She had spent the day in the capital um, collecting her her last dole payment because she got a job back home in in Callan and uh, County Kilkenny working in a restaurant. So she was intending to start that job. So she collected her dole and then she went to um, Brussels Bar in, in the capital and met a few friends, had a few drinks. And she went to get the bus home and she missed the bus t- to Callan. So she took a different bus. She took the bus to Nice. And from there, we know that um, she hitchhiked. She took two lifts and um, she got as far as Moon. And f- from there, um, there's a phone box in Moon. And from that phone box, she phoned a friend. Um, she said she'd be home soon and that a car had just stopped f- for her. Um, and that was the last time anyone heard from her. And likewise, the disappearance of Deirdre Jacob was a simple 
going about her business and then nothing? Yes, just a normal day. Um, essentially for Deirdre Jacob, it was July 28th, 1998. She was home from her teacher training in, in London. It was the summer, so she was at home with her parents. She went into Newbridge Town to, to visit uh, the, the the bank um, to get a bank transfer to pay for some uh, student accommodation in the UK. Her grandmother also owned a sweet shop in the town, so she stopped into her grandmother's and she went to the post office. Um, and that was at around half two when she'd finished up with all of her messages. So she started to make her way home to the, the family house, which is just outside Newbridge Town. It's about a 25 minute walk. So she starts to walk home. And on that journey home, that walk home, she's seen about five to six times by people who knew her, people who recognised her. And the last known sighting is on a... a grass verge very close to her family home at around three o'clock um, and that's the last anyone ever saw of Deirdre Jacob. Uh, she disappeared at around three o'clock in the afternoon in broad daylight. Catherine, for a long time there was no suspects in the case of Deirdre Jacob and Jojo Dollard. Tell me about the investigation, how they ran, what has happened over the years? Well, the two women went missing during a period in the 1990s when there was a spate of missing persons cases, women going missing. You know, we had cases like Fiona Pender, Fiona Sinnott, names that are well known, missing persons cases, all very similar, young women um, seemingly vanishing out, out of thin air. And there was a lot of there was a lot of fear at the time about it. Um, people were scared, women were scared. Individual investigations were all ongoing in relation to the cases. A task force was set up, Operation Trace to look into the theory that some of these cases might be linked, that there could have been effectively a serial killer at work in Ireland at the time. In the end, there was no link between them all found. There were commonalities between the cases, but there was no specific link. Um, and all of the cases, they all kind of disappeared in a, an 80 mile area outside Dublin. So um, there was a lot of focus on this particular area known as the Vanishing Triangle. So Operation Trace was set up, investigations were ongoing, but there was no specific suspect, particularly in the cases of Deirdre Jacob and Jojo Dollard, until the year 2000, when the name Larry Murphy came into the attention of Gardy. So tell me about Larry Murphy, what we know about him, and I suppose why he became a focal point, particularly, I think it's fair to say, in the case of Deirdre Jacob. Larry Murphy, he was at the time a fairly unknown kind of character. He was a carpenter from um, an area known as Bolton Glass in County Wicklow. He was the father of two children, like I say, a very sort of unassuming character. But he came to the attention of the authorities um, on Friday, February 11th in the year 2000. There was a 26-year-old businesswoman in Carlow Town who was making her way back to her car in the town car park after finishing work for the day. She was going to her car. She had the day's takings in her handbag, €700. And just as she reached her vehicle, uh, a man approached her. He said he wanted wanted her bag, give me her bag. And he punched her in the face with such force that he fractured her nose. Um, he got her into uh, the passenger side of her own vehicle. And from there, he he drove her car to his, his vehicle, which was also in the car park. And he bundled her into the boot of his car. 
And from there, he drove to um, a number of remote areas uh, in and around the Wicklow Mountains. And he subjected uh, this woman to multiple rapes, horrific, um, horrific circumstances. Um, She was bound and gagged, stripped. Um, He moved from one location to another. Um, And while he was transporting her from the, the various rape locations, he had his music blurring loud uh, uh, in the vehicle. Um, she's in the boot, absolutely petrified. as She's going from, from one um, side to the other. Um, but they do have conversations uh, in between uh, the attacks. And he opens up to her. He tells her the name of his two children. And at one point, he tells her he's going to take her back to Carlow Town. Um, and they reach a wooded area um, at about half ten at night at this point. Um, like I said, there's been a number of rapes at this at this stage. Um, he opens the boot, um, takes her out, and attempts to suffocate her with a plastic bag. In the process of this, she manages to get the bag partly off her her head, um, kicks and screams a bit, and um, par- partially, you know, gets a bit free from him. Um, and at this point, um, out of nowhere, a vehicle. Um, starts to come towards uh, the scene and it's two hunters who are out um, hunting for the night um, this is an area in the Wicklow Mountains that um, would be known for hunting um, and her attacker uh, startled by um, you know the, the, the sight of, of, of two strangers coming upon him he he jumps back into the car um, she's got out of the boot at this stage and has started to run for her life and he starts his engine and drives past the two men. They recognise him as a local. They know who he is. They know that it's Larry Murphy, a local man, a local carpenter. Um, and they, they go to the woman's aid. Um, she's very, very distressed. She's got herself tangled in barbed wire um, in, in the pursuit of, of freedom. And uh, they calm her down and they get her to Bolton Glass Garda Station where both men um, inf- inform Gardy about what they've seen, what they've witnessed. And one of them um, gives Larry Murphy's uh, name to, to Gardy and says, we know who did this, we recognise the man. Murphy ended up spending 10 years in jail for that horrific attack. But it was 2010, a decade ago, that he walked free and since then it's understood that he has lived at various locations around Europe including at one point in Amsterdam where the Irish independence Paul Williams tracked him down. Larry's trail went cold until earlier this year when our investigations revealed a man dubbed the Beast of Baltinglass was living in Holland. By June we had established he was there and we were on his case. Our search for Larry Murphy has brought us here to Amsterdam. Now, the information we have so far is that he's been living here uh, since about January or February of this year, 2012. We also understand that he's working in a logistics company. Knowing the general area where he lived was a huge start, and then we got lucky. While staking out the streets of the quiet suburb, we finally spotted him. There he was, Ireland's most notorious sex offender, having a cigarette outside a local supermarket. 
Later, we secretly observed him heading off with a pal on a motorbike. Where is Murphy now, Catherine? Well, as far as we know, Larry Murphy is living in the UK at the moment, living and working in the UK. Um, he's obviously out of the jurisdiction. In relation to the um, cold case inquiries that have been ongoing, his name has come up over the years in relation to a number of cases he's been a person of interest in. But one of the hardest things for Gardaí here is that they have very little physical evidence. Yes, well, there, you know, it, the file that has been sent to the DPP, as far as we know, it's a very thorough file. There's a lot of um, circumstantial evidence in that file, a lot of testimony. In 2011, a prisoner came forward, uh, a former cellmate of Larry Murphy's, who told uh, a det- detective that Murphy had confessed to abducting a woman, a woman which matched who matched the description of, of Deirdre Jacob. Um, that, you know, he described in detail what what Larry Murphy had alleged he'd done, that he had drove up beside her, um, uh, pulled up in his car, that that he had been asking for directions and that when Deirdre uh, leaned in to give him directions, he he dragged her into the car and um, subsequently killed her. So there's a lot of circumstantial evidence and testimony, like I said, but the, the missing piece in all of this is the fact that there is no body. Um, and while it's not impossible to, to try and convict someone of murder in the absence of a body, it does make it very, very difficult. Over the last two decades, there have been many false dawns. There have been many new leads that led to nothing. And in 2018, the case of Deirdre Jacob was upgraded from a missing person to that of murder. Similarly, last year, the case of Jojo Dollard was upgraded to murder. And now, Catherine, in the last few days, we have another twist. Yes, well, on Sunday evening, the, the media were notified from Garda headquarters about this this new search in connection with the cases of missing women, uh, Deirdre Jacob and Jojo Dollard. It seemed to come out of the blue um, and the, the fo- focus is on an area, um, a large um piece of, of woodland in the Kildare, on the Kildare Wicklow border in a place known as Taggartstown. The searches there are going to take um, a number of weeks. Like I say, it's, it's a large piece of land. And this basically came about as a result of the ongoing uh, case review of both cases. But the, the focus seems to be on the Deirdre Jacob case and a piece of information that has been reviewed in relation to what's been described as a report of unusual activity on the evening Deirdre Jacob went missing. Um, and this unusual activity happened in this area. Gardaí have, have they've dedicated a lot of resources to search in this area. It's going to take a long time. It's going to involve um, digs. It's going to involve specialist equipment, cadaver dogs. Um, and the hope is that essentially that they'll find a body. They haven't said whether it's Deirdre Jacobs' body or it's Jojo Dollard's. But the hope is that the searches will result in, in some sort of evidential find at the site. It's 23 years since Deirdre Jacob went missing. And you have to wonder, Catherine, why now? Why do we suddenly have evidence of suspicious activity of something that happened 23 years ago when these stories have been in the news repeatedly over all that time? Yeah, and I think that's a very fair question in this case because um, 
this credible information about the unusual activity. It is new information. Um, Gardaí have known about this for a while, for a number of years is what they've said, haven't said exactly when they came into possession of it, but it is not new. It has been looked at again as part of this review and it more weight has been attached to it for one reason or another. It may be that there is now another piece of evidence that they can link with it, but in any case, it is being seen as something of, of, of great significance and the area that it is relating to is an area that the, the chief suspect in this case would have been very familiar with. Um, it's a stomping ground, essentially. And it's also an area that is very close to where uh, Jojo Dollard went missing. For all of those reasons, a decision has been taken to do real thorough research of this, this piece of land in the hope that something can be found. How did the families feel about what's happening? Well, the family of, of, of Deirdre Jacob, they've always, um, they've always spoken publicly about her case, but this week they've remained um, silent on this one. They were informed of the searches before the media were alerted, as were the family of, of Jojo Dullard, who, who I did speak to this week. And for all of these families of women who've been missing for, you know, 20 plus years, they've been through this a number of times before. It's an awful experience to go through the hope, raised hopes only to be dashed. There have been a number of searches down through the years that have yielded nothing. Um, there have been remains discovered that they have hoped were their loved ones and it's turned out they haven't been. So when they get news of these searches, and this is quite a high profile one, um, it, it's fair to say that um, it, it, it's quite an emotional time for them all. And in the case of the Dullards, Kathleen Bergen, who spoke to the Irish Independent this week, Jojo's sister, you know, she did say that they had been informed of the search um, and, and in, indicated that the focus is more on the case of Deirdre Jacob, but that they have been told there could be a possibility of a link to Jojo's case. You know, she said that. But she did say that, you know, you can't help but get your home hopes up that it's only human nature and they're trying not to raise their, their hopes too, too much. But in the end, she says that, you know, if it's not them who gets an answer, if it's not the Dullard family who get an answer and the Jacob family get an answer this time, then that means, you know, there's a bit of peace for at least one family in all of this. That was Irish Independent Special Correspondent Catherine Fegan, who will continue to report on that search over the coming days on independent.ie. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today's episode was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by Tabitha Monaghan, recorded by Gavin Hennessy, and sound designed by John Smith. Archive clips courtesy of independent.ie and RTE. You can listen to the Indo Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Listener.